We are going to be looking at Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. I've been thinking a lot in, in my studies. I've been taking classes for seminary and been asking myself, well, what am I learning? What's God teaching me? And I think Revelation chapter 2, these last couple months, God has really been working in my heart and in my life um, in this area. And um, my sermon's entitled, Rediscovering Our First Love. And this is something that's a challenge for me because I am very intellectual, um, knowledge-based. Those are what I like to focus on. I like to see tangible facts and things in front of me. And that's what helps strengthen my faith and my belief. But I read this passage and I can't help but be convicted by it. Because it calls me beyond just that knowledge and those intellectual facts that we can learn. And so this morning... Um, I'll read for us Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And it says this, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. And I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. And you have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. And yet I hold this against you, for you have forsaken your first love. And remember the height from which you have fallen. And repent and do the things you did at first. And if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So this is God's word to us this morning. As I read these passages, and Revelation can be a tricky book sometimes for, under, for us to understand because there's a lot of prophecy and there's the end times. And this isn't necessarily about the end times this morning. But in fact, it's about the state of our current church. Not just our church here in Firth, Nebraska, but the American church as a whole, the universal church beyond that. And so this is a message to the church in Ephesus this morning. And there's an old saying which says, the good is ever the enemy of the best. The good is ever the enemy of the best. And nowhere, I believe, is that truer than in the kingdom of God and in the lives of Christians and in the lives of the church. And when we think about it, that's one of Satan's oldest schemes that he employs. And the scriptures tell us that we as humans, as followers of Jesus, are not aware, unaware of his schemes. And we can know that wherever God is at work, Satan is not far behind, seeking to thwart and disrupt God's plans. And scriptures tell us that Satan is our enemy. He's like a roaring lion, seeking those that he can to devour. And as you study the New Testament, and the Old Testament, you'll quickly see that Satan employs many different tactics to thwart the word, work of God and try to ruin that. And so wherever he can, Satan will introduce false doctrine into the church and false theology. 
And where that doesn't work, he introduces separation and division amongst God's people, knowing that a house divided amongst itself cannot stand. And Satan continues to use things like gossip and jealousy, suspicion and pride. And he causes God's people to take their eyes off of Jesus and his commandments. And he instead causes God's people to focus on earthly things which have no eternal value. And when God's people to refu- refuse to allow sin in their midst, Satan steps in and he brings persecution and difficulties for the church, all in an effort to discourage and dishearten God's people. And when those aren't completely successful, there's one more tool I think that Satan likes to use, is, use to stop that forward progress of the church to stop it in its tracks, to keep it from moving forward. And I think it's the stealthiest tool that he uses. And it's one that we often don't catch until it's too late. And that's because it's masked behind a smokescreen of success. And when he can't deceive us, he can't divide us, he can't daunt us, what he will often do is divert us. And the fervor that we once had for Jesus is replaced by an acceptance of the way that things are. You see, Satan wants us to be so satisfied with where we're at right now. With what we're doing. He wants us to be satisfied with what we've accomplished in life. Instead of clinging to Christ and his kingdom. And when we become satisfied with who we are right now and what we, where we're at and what we're doing, we, we lose our passion for Christ and His kingdom. A once consuming fire for God gets replaced with a complacency that is content with the religious status quo, going through the motions. But as we look at all the endeavors of humanity and everything that we strive to do as people, there's only one thing that carries an absolute promise of God's unending blessing. And that one thing is the expansion of God's kingdom. The expansion of the kingdom of God. And when we share our faith and we make disciples, God has promised to bless our efforts, to multiply us, and to give us success. And so knowing that the one thing that has God's unending blessing is the expansion of his kingdom, is our work in expanding that kingdom, then why do we see 70% of church-growing youth leave the church following high school? Why do we see so many churches in our country and in our world declining, dying, If the one thing that gets God's unending blessing is his kingdom and the expansion of that kingdom, then why do we see those things? And this morning, I think this text paints a picture of a church um, and a church and it shows us a picture of why churches are in decline. It shows us a picture of why we have 70 percent of children and kids who grow up in the church leave the church. After high school, it's a picture not only of a church, but of individual Christians, because after all, a church is made up of individuals. 
And somewhere along the line, the church has allowed the status quo, it's allowed tradition, it's allowed habit to become the focus of their faith. I don't think that the same thing has happened here in this church, at least on a large scale. But I think as we read this passage, we have to be vigilant. We have to be on guard. As a congregation, individually, we have to be on guard against losing our passion for Jesus Christ. We have to be on guard against becoming like the church in Ephesus that we read about here in this passage. And so our text this morning has been recorded in God's Word because it's prophetic because it's preventative and because it's prescriptive, it's given to help and to guide local churches. Because God does not want us to become like the Ephesians. Okay, And so my goal this morning, as we look at this passage, as we examine the text, is to help you evaluate your own heart. Ask yourself, where are you at in your walk with the Lord? Be honest with yourself. Be open. And ask for the Spirit of God to guide you this morning. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the example of the church in Ephesus, Lord. And um, the warning that comes along with it when we lose our passion for you. And God, I pray this morning that we would find the courage and the strength to be honest with ourselves. And I think that's one of the hardest things for us to do is to step back, to be honest, to evaluate our life. And to admit that we're falling short. And Lord, we come to you knowing that even when we fall short, nothing can separate us from your love. And we find comfort and rest in that. And so Lord, we ask that you would speak to us this morning. Amen. And so the city of Ephesus, um, to give us a little background, was massive. It was majestic. It was one of the centerpieces of the ancient world. It was the center for tourism and trade. And there were four major trade routes that met in the city of Ephesus. And so it was a cosmopolitan major city in that ancient world. It was a wealthy city, but it was a very pagan city as well. It was home to the largest temple in the ancient world, the Temple of Artemis, which is one of the seven wonders of the world. And so there was a lot of culture, a lot of diversity A lot of knowledge and wealth that had been accumulated in this town. And we know from the scriptures in the New Testament that Paul had preached to the Ephesians in the city of Ephesus for three years. He went there on a missionary journey. We also know that he wrote the letter Ephesians to the people of Ephesus to help them to understand, and it helps us to understand the degree to which They had been taught the truth. Okay, and so these were people that knew what Jesus said. They knew what the apostles taught and they clung to that. They held to that. They knew how to walk like Christ, how to engage in spiritual warfare. And so their problem in this passage was not that they did not understand good doctrine. Their problem was not that they lacked perseverance and fortitude. Their problem was not that they got carried away by false teachers. Okay, the church existed in one of the most difficult times in all of Christian history. In AD 54, Emperor Nero, Roman Emperor, um, 
brought about widespread persecution for the Christians. Things that we could never imagine going through. But yet this church in Ephesus refused to bow to the emperor of Rome. Refused to bow the knee to Caesar. And they stood firm amidst their persecution and clung to Christ throughout this. And so here in verses 1 through 3, and I shouldn't have shut my Bible. Um, Here I go telling you not to, but I do. Um, And so I'm going to read this again as soon as I get there. Um, So verses 1 through 3 says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. And you have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. And so this passage starts off and it's a letter to the church in Ephesus. And John is seeing this vision of Jesus talking and speaking to this church. And these are the words of Jesus. Of Him who holds the seven stars in His right hand. The seven churches in Revelation. And so Jesus is speaking these words and He's saying to these people, Good job. Keep it up. You guys are doing good. You guys know the proper doctrine. You call out false teachers. You've persevered. And so He's building them up and He's saying, You guys have done a wonderful job. And nothing here we see goes unnoticed by God because He knows all that we do and all that they have done. He knows all of their works. But as we learn here, and I think there's something powerful to be learned here, is that mere works, hear me on this, mere works are not enough to please the Lord. I think it's here we see what Robert E. Murray once said when he said, No amount of activity in the king's service will make up for neglect of the king himself. No amount of activity in the king's service will make up neglect for neglect of the king himself. And so what we see here is that works do not please the Lord entirely. He wants more than outward compliance. He wants more than people who do and say the right thing. He wants more than people that get caught up in tradition and habit. Because this church in Ephesus, it had been a generation since Paul had preached there. And so the church had grown and flourished on its own and new leaders had stepped up and taken over. And they carried on the traditions of doing the right thing. But we see this transition in verse 4. And I wish the NIV said, but, but it says, yet, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. But I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. And so in verses 4 through 7 here, as you read on, Jesus is calling His people to return to their first love. To rediscover their first love. He says, remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things that you did in first. Because these people, they had started out strong, these followers of Jesus. But over time, things began to change. A generation had come and gone. They'd remained faithful to the Word of God. They had endured hardship and persecution But something was lacking 
in their lives and they had lost their passion. And that passionate love for Jesus that had motivated them in the beginning to share their faith, to share their newfound trust in Jesus, eventually gave way to a mechanical faith, to habit, to a ritualized form of service that lacked enthusiasm. In other words, the Ephesians became satisfied with where they were at. And they went on and they said, well, this is what we do. We go to church for an hour on Sunday. Maybe we go to Sunday school. We'll give our kids the option of attending Sunday school if they want, but most of the time they say no, and that's okay. We want them to learn. We talk to a few people before and after the service. We stand up and we half-heartedly sing a few songs out of habit. Throw some money in the offering plate when it goes by. We open the pew Bible when the pastor reads it. Take a few notes. Pack it up, head it home. And for many of us, after church on Sunday morning, we think to ourselves, either consciously or subconsciously, my faith has been tended to for the week. We'll do it again next Sunday. What happens when we lose our first love? What happens when the passion that we once had for Christ is replaced by legalism? or by self-righteousness, or by a mechanical form of Christianity that contains all the externals, that we look good, but we lack that internal passion that once stirred our hearts when we first came to know Christ. So this morning, we're asking the question of how do we lose our first love? We're going to move through these fairly quickly, but the first way is that we become more concerned with knowledge than with holiness. See, the Ephesians, they knew all the right things. They said all the right things. They did all the right things. And what happened to them is that their personal holiness was no longer their quest. They began to become convinced that knowledge is what made them holy. And thus, knowledge is something that they could attain for themselves and it replaced God's perseverance and lordship in their life. And see, this is something that we can't do for ourselves. What we know becomes more important than what we are. That's, I think, the first way that we can lose our passion is when we get so caught up in knowledge. And I've caught myself doing this. And this is, I think, where God is pulling me back and he's saying, Ian, where's your passion for me? I love learning new things. But again, at the end of the day, I tell myself subconsciously that what I know is more important than my passion for Jesus. And that's not right. Point two is that we become comfortable in our traditions and we fail to reach the lost. Okay, so we lose this sense of awe and wonder that we once had for the righteousness and the majesty of God. Do you remember when you first came to trust in Jesus in your life? That passion, that fire. And you're walking into church, you're wanting to read the Bible, you're wanting to soak it all in. And you come to church and you sit in the pew and you see people that are half asleep. And you see those people go home and you don't see them live out their faith. And pretty soon, 
that new convert is, is saying, well, I, I guess I'll do what they're doing. And they fall into the habit, into the tradition of it. It causes us to become more concerned with the comfort of the saints than with the salvation of the lost. We get consumed and wrapped up in our building and what we're doing and our programs and our fellowship. And I think that this is what causes churches to become inwardly directed instead of outwardly focused, like God calls us to be. And I think that when churches grow cold, they're more concerned with maintaining their tradition and singing the right songs in the service and praying the right way and reading the right version of the Bible. I think they get caught up more in those things than they are with seeing the lost experience the salvation of Jesus Christ. And that's a sad thing. Truly is. And I think the third way that we can lose our faith is that we grow cold to the Holy Spirit. And this is primarily shown through your relationships with other believers. And when we grow cold to the Holy Spirit, we become satisfied with living at odds with other Christians, thus bringing division into the church. We're okay with gossiping about other believers. We're okay about not getting along with other people. When unity is one of the most talked about things in the New Testament, we become satisfied with the vision. Because when we are passionately in love with Jesus, when you are connected with your first love, we are sensitive when we grieve His Spirit. When we're doing things that are contrary to the Word of God, But when we become cold, we lose that sensitivity and gossip and pride and jealousy and bitterness, envy, greed, attitudes of superiority, who's the better Christian, and a host of other ungodly things are allowed to dwell within us when we grow cold to the Holy Spirit. And we become unaware of how much God hates those things. Point four is that we become content with what we are rather than striving to be more like Christ. So as our passion for Christ becomes diminished, so does our desire to be like Him. And instead of comparing ourselves to Jesus, we begin to compare ourselves against one another. Always reasoning with ourselves in our minds, saying, as long as we're better than so-and-so, I'm okay. As long as I go to church this many times more than they do, I'll be a better Christian. I'll be okay. It's an attitude that says, you know what? I've got my flaws. I've got my issues. I sin often. But you know what? God loves me exactly how I am. And He forgives me. And because of that, I'm okay. Just like I am. And I don't have to change. I don't have to do anything different because, hey... We all got issues, man. That's what this attitude is. And I will say, yes, God loves you right now in this moment as you are. But he does not want you to stay as you are today. And so this attitude leads 
to self-righteousness. It's the attitude that says, I went to church this week. I prayed because I had a rough week. I put some money in the offering plate. I helped out at spring cleanup day. So I'm a good Christian. Self-righteousness is what that leads to. We become comfortable with what we are right now rather than striving to be more like Jesus. Point five here is that we put other things on the throne of our life instead of Christ. And mind you, we give lip service to Christ as our Lord, but in our hearts, other things have priority. It may be success, it may be power, pride, prestige, pleasure, money, security. It may be our family, it may be our kids' success, it may be our grandkids' success, it may be athletics, maybe other other activities. But when we lose our first love, oftentimes something else is placed on the throne of our life instead of Christ. And so as you think about this and you say, well, Ian, how do I know if something else is on the throne of my life? I'll ask you, what is consuming your thoughts? Where's the majority of your time, energy, and money spent? What consumes you? And whatever is consuming you, is on the throne of your life. Sometimes that's hard to hear, but I think that's the truth. And the bottom line is that we become dispassionate, we become cool in our relationship with Christ. But as we look at the New Testament, what do you think Stephen, the first martyr of Christianity, of the faith, had? What was his faith like? Do you think it was formal, a legalistic relationship? where he was just going through the motions, no passion, no zeal for the Lord. That's not the type of relationship that causes someone to die for Jesus. What about the relationship that Paul had with Jesus? When he was beaten and left for dead, when he was shipwrecked, when he was thrown in prison and knew he was going to be executed, what type of relationship with Jesus did he have? And oftentimes we look at those people in the Bible and we say, oh gosh, they're way up here, I'm way down here, I can never be like them. The difference? They were connected with their first love. And and so we compare those relationships to the type of relationships that Christians with Jesus have today. They make little to no time for Him on a daily basis. Instead of being concerned about the things that concern God, they're more concerned about themselves and their personal desires. They're unwilling to give all that they are and all that they have to Jesus because they're unwilling to be inconvenienced for Jesus. They don't witness or share the gospel because they cause, that might cause other people to see them as weird or a Bible beater or fanatical or awkward. We're afraid that we might ruin a relationship that we've had for 20 years. Are you kidding me? They're more willing to give their time, energy, and money to a sporting event, to some sort of entertainment or a hobby, than they are to the things of God. For them, life is about self-advancement. It's not about the kingdom of God. And they ask the question, what do I have to do to be a good Christian Because they are only willing to give as much of themselves and their worth to Christ as they absolutely have to in order to convince themselves that they're a good Christian. 
They're trying to find what's the bare minimum I can do. And friends, hear me. Christ never asked for a part of your life. He asked for all of it. He didn't ask for the little God-sized hole in your heart. He didn't ask to fill that. He asked for your whole heart. He asked for absolute rule and reign in our lives. And he had never asked to be one of our many passions. He asked to be the consuming passion in our life. And so it's dangerous for us to go through the motions of Christianity without a passionate love for Jesus because it sets a wrong example, first and foremost, to new Christians. And it causes them eventually to backslide to get into fellowship with the church so that they fit in with what the church is doing. Because you've all seen that. I have seen that. I've seen somebody come to the faith and they're on fire and they're fired up and they step back and say, wait, you guys just go to church on Sunday? That's it? I guess I have to take a step back so I fit in with you. Sad. But also, when we go through the motions of Christianity, it teaches our children and our grandchildren a distorted lesson on what it means to be a Christian. 70% of kids grow up in the church, go to youth group every week, leave the faith after high school. And I've been studying this trend in a class, and I really believe it's because our churches in America are full of people who go through the motions. They're content with sitting in a pew on Sunday morning, going home, and going about the rest of their life. And our kids see that, and they're smart. And they don't notice it when they get to, high, get to college. They notice it when they're in middle school and high school. And they see adults... They come and they're half-heartedly worshiping and they're not passionate about God and all it is is a habit and something that we've done. And the kids say, what's the point? What difference does it make? That 30% of kids who grow up in the church that remain in the faith, there's one common element among all of those and it's that their families pray together every day. And I don't mean that they get together before dinner and say, Dear Jesus, thank you for this food. Amen. I don't mean that they just pray when things are going really rough and they don't know what to do. They are praying every day. They're praying for their neighbors. They're praying for their friends. They're praying for their family. They're being intentional. One tangible step is just simply praying every day with your kids, with your grandkids. Don't go through the motions. And Jesus today is saying, remember from where you have fallen. Remember where you were at when you first came to trust in me. So how do we rediscover our first love? First is to remember the love you had for Jesus at first. Remember the height from which you had fallen. Remember back to when you first came to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. The burdens you were carrying were lifted. Life became lighter. It wasn't a struggle all of a sudden with no end in sight. Life became purposeful and fun. You experienced unconditional love for the very first time, knowing that Jesus would never leave you, He would never forsake you. He promised to love you forevermore. 
You added a new word to your vocabulary as well. No. You were able to say no to sin. No to lying. No to cheating. Because of the power of Christ within you. You were set free from the bondage of sin. Free to become what God intended you to be. Remember the love you had at first. Step two, repent of your wrongs and your lost love. This is how you rediscover your first love, is repenting of our wrongs immediately and going back to what you first did when you came to know the Lord. Confess your sins that you've committed. Confess the loss of passion in your life, saying, God, I've strayed from you. I've lost my passion and my desire to know you. Confess that to God. And 1 John 1.9 is so comforting because it says when we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and will purify us from all unrighteousness. What a comfort. I need that every single day of my life. And I would assume that everybody else in this room does as well. He will make you brand new. He will make you as white as snow. But one of the hardest things I think that we have to do when we confess our sins is forgetting the things and the stuff that we've done. We look at Paul, the apostle. He was a Pharisee, a murderer of Christians. And it was a murderer of Christians and believers in Jesus Christ that wrote 60% of the New Testament. Philippians 3, 7 through 8 says, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider lost for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Garbage. Paul did all the right things. He said all the right things. He knew all the right things. He had zeal for the Lord. But he persecuted Christians. He persecuted Jesus. And that's the man that God chose. Verse 13 goes on to say, and this is the second half of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. Forget the stuff of the past. And that brings us to point three. And it says, set your eyes on Jesus and do what you once did. Set your eyes on Jesus. Because when we forget the past and we choose to put that behind us and trust that God's got that, all we have ahead of us is Jesus. And I think this is best embodied in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And it says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before Him, He endured the cross, scorning His shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. My plea to you this morning is to pursue Christ first in your life. And this is going to take some reworking of priorities in your life. Some of you may need to reprioritize your work, your family, your kids' sporting activities. You may need to reprioritize your desire for money 
in satisfaction, your own earthly kingdom? Are you making the necessary time in your day to grow closer to God? Are you pushing your spouse, your kids, and your grandkids closer to Christ? Are you inviting them into your relationship with God? And showing them that it's more than just going to church on Sunday. Are you living it out in love? And at the end of this passage, guys, in verses 5-7, through and I'll wrap it up here quick, but there's a warning to those who fail to repent and fail to return to their first love. And it says, If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. I will remove your lampstand from its place. And what he's saying there and what God is saying is that he will remove the fire of his spirit from our midst. God will take his hand off of the church and allow us to go through the motions. We'll still have our buildings. We'll still have our programs, our busy schedules. We'll have all the externals. You may be able to attract new people with pretty facilities, clever how-to sermons, but the power of God will be void from the church. And God will take His hand off the church. And honestly, what is a more tragic picture than a group of people that are going through the motions of Christianity without God in their midst? I don't think that there's anything more empty or more sad than that. What happened to the church at Ephesus? It's in ruins today. That city lies underneath a swamp. The church in Ephesus died, and the city died around it. Verse 7, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The truth of the matter is, guys, is that we can look and say, well, this is a message to our church as a whole. But a church is made up of individuals. And the passion of a church is never greater than the passion of its individuals and of its members. And so I'll tell you this morning that if we choose to rediscover our first love, if we choose to be on fire for Christ, that passion will be reflected in our church. But if we grow cold in our love for Jesus, that coldness will also be evident in our church as well. And this is why that although this passage is directed at the church as a whole, it comes down to you, the individual. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit has to say to his churches. So are you this morning honestly, as you honestly evaluate your trust in Jesus, your relationship with God, where are you at? Have you lost your first love? What's God saying to you this morning? Because I believe God is speaking to every single one of you right now. I believe that God is asking each of us to do the same thing He asked this church in Ephesus. He's asking you to remember where you once were. That passion you first had for Jesus. And go back to the moment when you first met Jesus. Remember the love that you felt, that stirring in your heart, the adoration you had for Jesus. Do you remember how grateful you were for the forgiveness of your sins? 
Do you remember how at that moment, nothing else mattered in life? Only Jesus. Do you remember how quick you were to pray? How eager you were to read the Word of God? To soak in that wisdom? And this morning, God wants you to go back. He wants me to go back and to remember that. To live in that. To recapture that passion. To come back to our first love. And I'm going to leave you this morning with a quote from Brennan Manning. To consider as you evaluate your relationship with Christ, as well as your duty as a follower of Jesus to this broken and lost culture and world. We have a duty. Here's his quote. The single greatest cause of atheism in the world today is Christians. The single greatest cause of atheism in the world today is Christians. Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips walk out the door and deny Him with their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. 